Coming up on Studios America, there's a new documentary out about Thomas Sowell. We'll talk about it with Blaze TV contributor Eric July, who happens to be part of the project. And I'll also be joined by Nina Ocharenko Schaefer from the Heritage Foundation to discuss how the left is secretly installing its own single payer healthcare system. You need to know about this and no one's talking about it. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Studios America and follow that oh so important link in bio to find out how to stream and share this show completely free. So Major League Baseball has announced that their all-star game will be moving out of Georgia over the evil voter laws going on there. Let's do the Georgia hostage situation. Stu does America. So Georgia is being held hostage by companies and activists all around the country. It really is an ugly situation. One of the big activists who is you'd think would be on the side of this boycott is Stacey Abrams, who might be governor. I don't know. She hasn't conceded yet, so I'm not sure if she won or lost her last race. But she's been out there uh, talking to people about the Georgia laws. And shockingly, she's not behind this whole boycott situation. Watch. Black, Latino, AAPI, and Native American voters whose votes are the most suppressed under SB 202 are also the most likely to be hurt by potential boycotts of Georgia. Oh no, liberals are eating their own. That's so sad to see. How do you stop AAPI hate if you're boycotting uh, the Georgia law? I don't know. If it's gonna affect uh, AAPI individuals, I'm very confused over how all this works. Uh, let me give you some of the facts on what's actually going on in Georgia. Uh, let me tell you about the voter ID section of this. This has been one of the top things being discussed other than the water in line thing, which is absolutely ridiculous and we discussed a little bit last week. But if it seems arduous to be able to come up with uh, an ID to vote, let me walk you through all the steps. This is how you vote in Georgia. Are you ready, everybody? Boys and girls, gather around. So first of all, you can write your driver's license identification number on the actual envelope when you're submitting your absentee ballot. That doesn't seem super hard, but maybe you lost your license. Maybe you don't have one. Can't remember your driver's license ID number. Well, then, of course, you can present your state identification card. Now, if you don't have a state identification card, well, they're free. So you can just go get one if you can prove that you're actually a citizen. Uh, but state identification card, pretty easy. Uh, so if you don't happen to have that, though, you can present your passport, another accepted form of ID. And that should be pretty uh, easy for a lot of people. But maybe you don't have an ID card. Maybe you don't have a driver's license. Maybe you don't have a passport. Can you vote? Yeah. Just list the last four digits of your social security number. <laughs> now, Maybe you don't have a social security number. Now we're starting to get into the tactics. This is sort of an area of the population. I, should you be voting if you don't have a social security number? I don't know. Maybe there's a circumstance I'm not thinking of. Okay, so you don't have a social security number or you don't know the last four digits. What do you do then? Well, you can present a copy of your state identification. So you don't need the actual card. You just need a copy of the card. Uh, that should be nice and easy. But what happens if you don't have a copy of that card? Well, then you're screwed, right? You can't vote, right? No, actually, you can present an employee photo ID issued by any branch of the United States government. <laughs> okay, well, you might not work for the government, so you don't have that employee ID, and you don't have any of the other kinds of ID either. Well, you can present a valid United States military identification. Well, not everyone's in the military. Of course, they might not have those IDs. So what do you do then if you don't have any of these first, you know, seven steps available to you? Well, you could submit a current utility bill. Yes, the terrible, difficult task of submitting a utility bill, something you can get without even being a citizen. Um, 
look, you could submit that. Now, what happens if you really don't like air conditioning or you don't like electricity? You hate electricity. You're living an Amish lifestyle somewhere. You don't have any utilities. Well, you could submit a current bank statement as well. Now, what if you don't have a bank account? What if you just have holes all over your backyard with gold bars stashed away? No banks for you. Well, maybe you got one of these stimulus checks. You could submit a current government check uh, as well. Okay, well, what if you're not getting, you're one of these really rich people with no bank accounts? Maybe you're that person. Uh, and no IDs and no driver's license and no passport. Well, then you can subject, submit a recent paycheck. Well, what if you're unemployed and not getting paid, but also not getting money from the government and don't have any ID and don't have a passport? Well, you can submit any of their other current government documents. But what if you don't have any of those? This person could be, the, first of all, what I'm describing right now, every single minority in America. Every one of them. None of them have any of these things. No, minorities don't have utilities. Well, even if you don't have all of that, can you vote? Of course, the answer to that is, unfortunately, yes, actually, you can. You have to fill out a provisional ballot with a sworn statement of penalties for false statements. So there's 13 steps there. If you can't get to any of those, well, then in theory, you wouldn't be able to vote. But I've just included all people. All people have at least one of those things in the United States if they're supposed to be voting. I'm sorry, uh, that's just a completely fair way of the voting process. And that's what comes down to this whole hostage situation. These companies, these organizations are being held hostage in Georgia because um, they're, they're under pressure. And first of all, you just got to say, look, screw off. Take your stupid all-star game somewhere else. You know, no one wants to watch. You're, you're a sport that is basically going through massive rules changes to try to lessen the amount of product you're giving to your audience. We need to shorten these games. Has that ever been a thing? We really need to shorten the amount of stuff we're getting uh, from, from, the, from the people we're paying. I need shorter games, damn it. Look, take your game somewhere else if you want to. What, what's really happening here is this is a, uh, a foundational point. They want to create a narrative that Republicans are taking voting rights away all across the country. Not for Georgia. This doesn't matter. This is not about Georgia. This is about HR1. H.R. 1. It's been passed in the House. It's a way to basically nationalize uh, elections for the Democrats. And, it, you know, it's also been called uh, the Permanent Democratic Majority Act because it's something that will lock them into victory after victory for years and years and years to come. That's why they want this. They need to have this, this outside crazy event that allows Joe Manchin to say, look, guys, I know I said I wouldn't overturn the filibuster, but I never imagined they do Jim Crow 2.0. It's a scam. Don't fall for it. Back in a second. Happy to welcome back Mr. Eric July. Uh, it's uh, Eric, of course, is a police contributor. You probably knew that already. Regular on the news and why it matters. And can be seen in the brand new documentary, Thomas Sowell, Common Sense in a Senseless World. Let's play a quick clip. Eric July hey. is a man on a mission. Singly top tier, meaning you not Eric is out to make great music and to educate people like himself about his hero. And I'm something like a great house. Anywhere Thomas Sowell is, he's the smartest person in the room. I would most definitely just tell him that he's been my biggest inspiration, hands down. Eric fronts the rap metal band backwards and uses his music to get a message across with politically charged lyrics, many of them inspired by Thomas Sowell. 
he has emerged as an influential young voice who is outspoken in his support for individual freedom and less government intervention. You see somebody like Seoul, who has been doing what he has been doing, getting out there and speaking uh, what he has been speaking, uh, overcoming the odds that he had to certainly uh, overcome in his, in his growth. And you also feel like you can conquer the world. It just goes to show from a generational standpoint how he's been able to influence somebody, you know, like me. Very, very cool. And a great documentary. Eric, welcome. I hey, appreciate you. Thanks for having me again. It was pretty cool. I was just like, I'm just watching a documentary. There comes Eric <laughs> yeah. July. I loved it. Uh, it's interesting, Thomas Sowell. I mean, as you point out, and it's 100% true, whatever room he's in, he's the smartest guy in the yes. room. Um, what, what, how did you find Sowell? Yeah, I was uh, in college, and uh, I was at the University of Memphis. And I, at the time, I was still kind of, not kind of, straight, straight up a leftist. And I remember uh, kind of getting tr intrigued by this concept of economics. And I started going down this rabbit hole. That was back then when the rabbit holes on YouTube were, were rather good. You could go down some pretty good, <laughs> good rap. Nowadays, not so much. Uh, but no, coming up across the likes of, of, of both Dr. Walter E. Williams, mm -hmm. as well as obviously Thomas Sowell. And just reading those two just absolutely changed everything. So it's my curiosity that was really kind of influenced by me losing a bunch of arguments because I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, <laughs> arguing with people on campus. Kind of got shamed into, into learning more. Yeah. And, you know, then I came across Soul, and it's just one of those things you read like the first couple of pages of like, books like Basic Economics, and it, it just clicks automatic. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I think most people get set sort of in their ways and won't go open their mind to a different opinion like that what what especially in college I yeah. mean I feel like that's you yeah. know not what that normally happens in college why did that happen with you well it, it was just uh, I was always I guess a bit of a loner anyway um, it's just from the political standpoint and the social standpoint yeah. a lot of those positions were just I was just born sort of into so it wasn't that I, I wouldn't do things or think for myself. It was just that that was one of the things that I hadn't really had an opportunity to deviate from right. and learn about because I that was all I was surrounded uh, around. So I think one of the best decisions that I had made, I was a track and field athlete. So I went to University of Memphis on a track scholarship. So getting not only away from my my family, and, or not just the just family, just the environment of being yeah. in Dallas and, and being isolated in itself and just having to pick up and learn a lot I think it was just a great point in time of my life to pick up on something. And again, thank God it was that. Yeah, uh, that's uh, absolutely. I and mean, <laughs> you said something I think really profound there, which is, I think, uh, incredibly important. It's, Thomas Sowell talked a lot about issues that were controversial. And the left would say uh, he would he was playing this conservative role, this libertarian role against and, and he was speaking out as a black man against what minorities uh, would 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 what would help minorities in the best way. And you looked at his view as empowering. Absolutely. And that's how I see it, too. Why did you see it that way? Well, if you actually listen to this man's story and, you know, him coming from just nothing and then even being like a former Marxist. Yeah. Uh, it was just a big I didn't thing even know that. Thomas. So, yeah, he's a big former, uh, former Marxist. And, and then, you know, one of the things he always says is that what, what led you, they ask him what, what led you to this line of thinking. He said, facts. Yeah, facts. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but no. With like, no hesitation. Yeah, exactly. That was on Dave no Rubin's show, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Facts. So, but no, that, that's my thing is that when I look at someone come from nothing and accomplish great things, you know, just with his mind and then seeing him be 
uh, for doing it as long as he did. Because again, when I go down a rabbit hole going down YouTube videos, I'm talking about videos that were even from then. That's what, 10, 10 years ago. We're talking, I mean, 20 years ago that the video was, he was, stuff, yeah. he was doing 70s, 80s, just, yeah. just, and it transcends generations. And that to me, and seeing that is an, is an inspiring thing in itself, his own story. But also when you listen to guys like himself and, uh, you know, rest in peace, brother, uh, Dr. E. Williams, like those are not things in which they, they speak as if they despise black people or anything like that. Right. Just a buffoonery that people would ever think that. It's, it's more of the self-empowerment approach when it's definitely when you can see the world for what it actually is, you can accomplish a lot more and and not having to wait for someone else to kind of move your world for you. And that's what I got from not only his story, but from the just the messaging. And obviously it kind of appears in the fact that I'm I adopt the sort of economic approach that I do. Yeah. Yeah. It was it's interesting to see how that splits people. I mean, you see people uh, like, uh, you know, Michelle Obama. Uh, you know, Kamala Harris, these are people in and out of the White House, right? Mm. And they'll sit here and just tell you we live in a suppressive society where you can't make it in total contradiction to their lives. Why don't they see their lives and the lives of someone like, uh, you know, Thomas Sowell or Walter Williams as inspiration as opposed to what they seem to see that as, as, a, as a reason that someone else has to do things for you? Yeah, see, that's what, unfortunately, race hustle is all about in, in mm. that they make the play that okay they no matter if they accomplish stuff on their own they have to look at it like i'm an exception because god forbid they pass that knowledge down to someone else and they're able to kind of use it to navigate in order to do better for themselves and get themselves or even their environment and the people around them out of the situation they become more obsolete in their message if that's the case and this is how, how you know their message isn't isn't worth anything because they're coming from a standpoint to where if you do do better, well, what incentive do they have to grow? Because they built their entire message off, well, you being oppressed and I'm here to come save you. <laughs> right. Right. Whereas the guys like Saul and the likes have built it more so on. I want you to be great. And you're actually doing things to be great. Unfortunately, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there that has you thinking you're doing worse than maybe what you are or thinking this welfare state is going to kind of get you out of this position. And, and that's just simply not, not the case. So those guys rely upon that. And you have, they have nothing, a lot of these organizations, unfortunately, which is why you wonder, like, despite you think race relations should be getting better, why does it feel like it's getting worse? Because they have nothing else to cling on, those, a lot of those people and a lot of those groups. Because if you start succeeding, well, what, what good would they, would they ever be? They would just have to rely upon their accomplishments. Yeah, you're no longer needed. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I, I, uh, I think my favorite founding father is Ben Franklin. Number one, I like that he wasn't a president. You know, he he, did, he yeah, wasn't. Yeah. I love that he was an inventor, right? He he did things in the in the, the private market. Yeah. And he, he I love that vibe. He also was really smart when it came to issues of poverty and struggle. And he said that you know one of the most important things you can do. He's looked all around the world. I'm totally butchering this quote, but he looked all around the world, and what he found is the more comfortable you made people in poverty, the more uh, likely they were to continue in it. And the opposite was true as well. That is just seen as hateful now. It's just seen as this thing that like, if, you, if you're not solving everyone's problems, if you're letting someone go through a struggle, then you're guilty of some crime. When the country, and I think so many pe successful people's lives, were born through struggle. Absolutely, I mean, it's like if they didn't have that, they could have went in a completely different direction. It's like 
they went through. And I think even with my own life, you know, with some mm. of the experiences that I had growing growing up, definitely, uh, you know, out here on the southern side of Dallas, being able to utilize that has helped me. Why am I able to be so uh, like I can communicate with so many different demographics like I can do here. I can go do the music stuff, whether it be rap or whether it be metal. A lot of that has to do with some of my struggle and upbringing and, and what have you, and which has allowed me to learn that, learn mm. that uh, how to communicate and do other other types of things. And that's often why you hear those successful stories like we I think we talked about this on the show not too long ago about how. Like the vast majority of, of millionaires are like self-made. Yeah. Like it's not like they came from money. You know what I mean? They were for the most part self-made. That should empower you, I think, if you see that and you understand that. But unfortunately, as I was mentioning earlier, these people depend on just you being exactly where you are. And if they can get you kind of like you mentioned and, and, and be, getting you comfortable and thinking that it always has to be that way and it won't be that way unless or it won't stop being that way unless someone generally a politician or something comes and tries to move it for you, then you can never get out of that situation. So what it does is it creates this sort of cycle of this is why you hear this term like intergenerational poverty, right, mm-hmm. where it creates this kind of cycle where everybody's kind of his mindset like that's all they know and that's all that has to be. Yeah, you know, it, it, so much of this is is this intergenerational, this inherited yep. sort of idea, and it's we act as if um, children, grandchildren, great grandchildren of people who went through real, legitimate, you know, hardcore racism and struggle. Uh, somehow that's passed down from generation to generation. Is there any truth to that? I mean, as, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like the whitest guy in the world. I came from, I grew up in Connecticut. What do I know? I mean, is there any truth to that? We hear it all the yeah. time. And, and it seems like it's more of a leftist message than an African-American message. Yeah, most definitely. It's more leftism because, again, it, it goes to it, it, they want to legitimize whatever it is that they're saying. And generally it has to do with, OK, you are a victim and you always will will be one. So you hear those like the legacy of slavery and all those sorts yeah. of terms that get get thrown out there to act like. I woke up a slave or something like that or just because my my great 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 grandparent was I have to be that and it's to me it's insulting and that's the way I always looked at it my grandmother um, I'm talking she grew up with 45 minutes south of uh, like with Little Rock 9 if you remember that story with those you know actual um, mm. you know uh, acts of uh, when you get these those schools started to get segregated and all those issues started to to arise and my grandmother was uh, you know she was born with the 20s and, you know, so she grew up in an era where she had to experience like all of that. Like I might have been there in the 1910s, uh, to be honest, but had to ex- actually experience some of that coming up definitely in, in Arkansas and in my mother as well, growing up in, in, in that era as well. And both of those generations were doing like they did better than the previous generation. So my mother mm-hmm. was doing better than what my grandmother was doing. So I look at that as what excuse do I have? Mm. Like, how can I not move? And unfortunately, not enough. I, I feel like I'm insulting my my rest in peace. Uh, the last time I, have, I, I don't I'm one of those guys that don't cry for nothing. The last mm. time I cried was when my grandmother died. Yeah. I love this woman to death. And and she knowing her story and how even with, you know, because my grandfather had died out of the, you know, it was the Korean War. Uh, got got sick out of all that. She had, she was raising seven kids on her own, uh, and then my uh, my mo- my mother comes in and she does better than her, and then I'm doing better than my mother. While I'm in a situation to help her out economically, I look at that as inspiration. So for me to just continue this cycle of, well, I have to 
be oppressed or I have to perpetuate this idea to me is insulting because I have not experienced what my grandmother experienced. I couldn't possibly experience my mother. I think was born was the last because she was the youngest, youngest of, uh, of the seven kids. She was the only one that didn't go to go to a segregated school. Uh, and the rest, all of her siblings did, I think going into, into high school is more so what it was. So it's like, how, what excuse do I have to make? Mm. And, and that's how I look at it. I look at it as empowering and inspiring and that I can't go back and I'm doing a disservice to my, the legacy of my own lineage, my own family, any event that I do that. That is an empowering message. Yeah. It's one that everyone should hear, no matter what your race is, no matter what your background is. Um, on this note, the last couple of weeks, we've seen a debate on, uh, in places like Georgia and Texas and, and other places, or particularly in red states, um, over these new voter laws. Kind of coming off of the election, there's been controversy. They've tried to tighten up some of these voter security laws. Laws. The left is calling them Jim Crow 2.0. Now, I find a, a, an implied racism in their arguments for this. They keep stating that African-Americans, for some reason, can't get identification to go vote. And it's like, I don't know, every guy that I know, I, I, I mean, I assume you have an ID. I, I haven't yeah, asked you yeah, specifically, yeah. but I've never heard of this problem before. African-American voters in polls, poll after poll after poll, overwhelmingly approve of voter ID laws. Yeah. Yet we're told it's Jim Crow 2.0. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing. And it just goes to show that there's an era that they just simply can't let go of. Mm. So you look at that era, like whether it be with Jim Crow slavery and all those instances where they were objectively bad. I don't think anybody would sit here and be like, well, oh. yeah, it's good. Like that was a good thing. No, nope. no, those were bad. They have nothing else. So when any event that there's something that, and it, look, man, where the smoke, they fire as far as I'm concerned, like something as basic as an ID, like I'm not even one of those guys that gets in all that voting stuff, but something as simple as that, you think would wouldn't even be that controversial, but yes, yeah. it is implied wor- racism because it's like, oh, you're not smart enough. Yeah. You're not smart enough to get get ID, which is like, dude, that's that's pretty insulting. You think you, you think I'm stupid? Like I can't I can't get an ID. I can't do this the way. It's like I'm I'm bound to the same rules that everybody else is. Like, what's the problem? Why is it not racist against that person, but it's racist for me? Like, what what are you trying to to say here? But that whatever they can point to, as we was talking about this on the news and why it matters. Um, b- before we talked about it multiple shows on news and why it matters and how that era. They can't let go of for some for some odd reason. You think it'd be a beautiful thing that the country kind of came from this. And we knew that these this was the experience of race and everybody where there was maybe this struggle that that happened. Not maybe yeah, it happened. And then somehow we were able to grow beyond that. Um, the country was able to go get beyond that. I think there's I always credit like the late 90s and the 2000s. I feel like we were over the over the racism hump then. Yeah. And then we just. I don't know. It just went backwards. It was kind of weird. I don't know what happened. Like, I feel like we were over it. But no, they they have nothing else. That's what it all boils down. You want to understand leftists and why they keep pulling that card, even when they can't, even when it doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, as rationally speaking, we're looking at this like, where on earth can they find the racism? It sounds crazy because it is crazy. Mm. But when you when you have nothing else, you have to reach. And this is why I say whether smoking is fire. Maybe there's something funky going on to where they think that, okay, people actually, I don't know, going to vote the right way is a problem and they can't do maybe something that they alluded to doing uh, last election. I don't know. Mm. Maybe elections before. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, Interesting. Um, One more before I let you go. Uh, Going back to Thomas Sowell, his his view of the world. 
he talked a lot about empowerment. He talked about if you if you tried to do it, if you really pushed and, and understood the system and worked hard to do it, you could do it. Uh, that's one thing I've always thought to myself as well. One secret like ingredient of success in the capitalist system is believing in the capitalist system. If you are taught from birth the leftist line that you can't do it, that you need the government there to help you, that this is an unfair system that will keep you down no matter what, and it's beat into your head by the media and by the left over and over and over and over again, what chance do you have competing with someone who has the opposite view? You, you don't, because generally that person is going to outdo you, and uh, top to bottom really is what's going to happen, because that other person has ingrained in their mind that they can't. I always look at it like this, even now, even back then when I would argue when I was a leftist because I didn't know I was too stupid to understand what I actually was. <laughs> my approach was, even if I, there was something that, there was an external source that caused me to, let's say, come out of a situation on the short end, let's say on the short end of the stick. Mm -hmm. I always looked at how could I, what did I do to put myself in that situation? Yeah. And how can I avoid it going into the future? And to me, having that approach I attribute, if not all of my success, most of it to exactly that. Because if you go around pretending or trying to perpetuate the idea that you are a victim, well, that's all you're going to ever be. It is psychological. It is, it is absolutely a mindset. The people that, have uh, like, that strive to do great things, especially people that unfortunately were, were in these unfortunate situations, like myself growing up in a single parent, parent household and, and, and all of that, you have to you have to want and you have to have that desire. And unfortunately, that's not enough of that being instilled definitely in young folks of I would argue of different uh, uh, all races. But certainly when we talk about a lot of these uh, uh, black folks, young black, black, black boys in particular, where there's like you can't move. Your world is how I always word it is that show. They say your world can't move unless you unless we move it for you. So you're always waiting around for pr the next president, the next uh, mayor, the next politician, even the next celebrity to come move your world. And then everybody or you in that geographical area can 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 see some success as opposed to look at it, looking at it like, dude, what can I do? There's a lot of tools out there. I might not know about them. How about I seek those? How about I go out there and go out of my way to try to be great? And that's what I, I mean, even to this day, I'm a very, I'm, I'm only 30, but I have a lot of aspirations. I feel like I'm just getting started, mm. despite me having the accomplishments that I have, because that's how you have to be. If you always perpetuate the idea, though, that you'll be a victim, then you're going to be nothing else. Ah, that's an empowering message from Eric <laughs> July. You can tell by he's in a Thomas Sowell documentary. <laughs> uh, Blaze TV's Eric July. Be sure to catch him on the new documentary, Thomas Sowell, Common Sense in a Senseless World. And, of course, check out his podcast as well, and on News is Why It Matters. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me again. We'll do it again. All right. Back in a second. Man, I think most white people and black people are great people. Hmm. I really believe that in my heart. But I think our system is set up where our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are designed to make us not like each other so they can keep their grasp of money and power. Mm -hmm. They divide and conquer. I truly believe in my heart most white people and black people are awesome people, but we're so stupid following our politicians, whether they are Republicans or Democrats. And their only job is, hey, let's make these people not like each other. We don't live in their neighborhoods. We all got money. 
Let's make the whites and blacks not like like each other. Let's make rich people and poor people not like each other. Uh, let's let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe that in my heart. Hmm. You know, Charles Barkley uh, there is really one of the one of the few interesting people in the media. And I, you know, I don't agree with everything that Barkley talks about. He often says things I disagree with, but he just feels like he's at least trying to boil it down to common sense. And the bottom line with all of this is it's true in that, like, we've lost contact with the idea that, you know, people are, like, normally pretty cool. Like, I don't know, the people I deal with in my normal life are pretty great. And maybe if we kind of go into these interactions with uh, a positive outlook and, good, and, and an idea of expecting the best uh, motivations, we'd get a lot further a lot faster. Back in a second. When it comes to car insurance and home insurance, don't we deserve better? I mean, I know I do. Uh, I'm certainly going to deserve better, but do you? I think you do too. Uh, I put my policy to the test and turned to Gabby. Gabby, by the way, stands for, I didn't even know this, get a better insurance. Yes, getting better insurance with Gabby means a better price for the same insurance coverage. Who knew something like this even existed? Uh, they didn't exist places like this. It seems like not that long ago, we were flying blind. Well, uh, if you use your current insurance information and get started in just minutes, you'll be able to see the exact quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have, and it's free. I went through this process. It's very easy. They can match you up with exactly the same coverage that you have and see where's the better price. Get a better insurance with Gabby. It's totally free to check, and there's no obligation. Go to Gabby.com slash stew, G-A-B-I dot com slash stew, Gabby.com slash stew. Happy to welcome to the program Nina Ocherenko Schaefer. She is a senior research fellow at the, for in health policy at the Heritage Foundation and the author of the new article, Don't Blink or You'll Miss It. The left's quietly putting in place everything it needs for a single payer system, which you can read at the Heritage Foundation website or the Daily Signal. Uh, I'll be sure to tweet that out uh, right after this interview. Nina, thanks so much for coming on the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You've terrified me, though. I, I'm, I'm not appreciative of that. Um, your article is is scary. It's, it's, it's scary how much they've already lined up uh, when it comes to moving toward an even more invasive health care program. Well, certainly um, they haven't wasted any time and you really have to kind of step back and take the full picture because sometimes we get so caught up in looking at one thing or another and we forget to see how all these pieces fit together. So early on in the Biden administration, the, admin the Biden um, administration took quick action um, with executive orders and other administrative um, um, efforts to begin to expand Obamacare and expand the role of government in the healthcare system. Um, it also, we have the big COVID relief packages, which also have done significant increases in government's um, running of the healthcare system. And then just this week, uh, the Energy and Commerce Committee hosted a meeting, uh, uh, a hearing that had 18 bills all aimed at increasing government control over the healthcare system. So I think they are plotting very carefully, piece by piece, all the mechanisms that they need to put in place to make a more seamless transition to a single payer system over the over a longer term. It's really, I mean, it's really amazing how quickly this has happened. They seem to have, uh, you know, I, I hear progressives talk about this from time to time. 
they sort of learned this quote unquote lesson from the Barack Obama administration that they didn't they, they didn't go for enough. Now, that blows my mind, frankly, to think that way. But they, they think of it as they didn't go for enough. They wa- they wasted too much time. They tried to be bipartisan. This time they're going to learn their lesson and just go for it. Is, does, is that consistent with what you're seeing? It is. And I think what we've seen just within the first three months is just really what's to come in the future. And so I think a lot of uh, policymakers need to be on their toes, especially in Congress, to be ready to combat that with with an alternative that really, uh, you know, protects the gains that we gained under the Trump administration in health care. Um, that really empowers individuals and then really lets the states give the states some resources and tools so that they can manage what's happening on the ground in their state. If there's one thing we learned during COVID, that states need the flexibility to adjust and adapt to the healthcare needs of the people on the ground. Absolutely. Let, let's dive into the, the first part, the part that's already done, right? $1.9 trillion. We know uh, very little of it was related directly to COVID, uh, but there was a lot of money in there for the healthcare system generally. And to me, it didn't seem well targeted toward dealing with a pandemic. It seemed well targeted to, as you point out, expanding uh, government control of healthcare. Yeah, so the recent um, COVID relief bill included a massive expansion of Obamacare, which not only provides subsidies to people who are getting subsidies more generous to people who are already getting subsidies, but um, which eventually actually just goes to the insurance plans in order to mask the real cost of what healthcare is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also goes to people, upper income, higher income people, by removing any kind of income limitation on what who can qualify for the healthcare subsidies. Those are two really important pieces um, because it's really driving a larger pattern of what we see the plans are, which is more federal spending, um, consolidate people to enroll into the government health care plans, remove any non-government um, health care options, and really restrain what states can do to fix what's happening at the, at the local level. Uh, you know, you point out, too, that a lot of this goes to the Medicaid uh, spending and the Medicaid arm here. You know, I remember going through the whole Obamacare debate, and at the beginning, the sort of red states really held the line on this. And they said, we're not going to go down these roads. And I feel like every year there's a one or two more that sort of trickle in and they just can't resist this money. It's very tempting for these governors to figure out a way to accept it. We are kind of still seeing that go on. And now it seems like they're making it even more difficult for them to uh, to to say no to the cash. Well, certainly, I think that the original we have to remember that the original Obamacare um, actually did use sticks instead of carrots to the states and Mm. said, if you're not going to expand Medicaid, uh, we're going to take all your Medicaid money away. They've kind of transitioned away from that towards let's just throw as much money at the states as we possibly can. uh, And then let's see if that will tempt them into expanding. But what is always really important, I think a lot of the states that haven't expanded, remember this and, and keep it to heart, which is every time you have additional federal dollars, there are always federal strings that come along with it. And this is what's kind of some of the unspoken underlying policy goals that this administration, I think, and the Congress are trying to do, which is to strip states of any flexibility that they have to run their Medicaid programs the way they want to run them. And um, I think that this money, while might be what's on the front page and what people are looking at. It's really the tentacles of the federal policies that come with those dollars that I think and um, that that continue to keep the non-expansion states to resist 
And I think if you look at the states that have expanded, many of them probably wish they hadn't done it. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, now, the original Obamacare also had a public option in it, uh, sort of famously. It was, a, thankfully, I think, not put in the final bill. So we haven't had to deal with that yet. Biden has cl uh, signaled clear support for that. Uh, obviously, the rest of the candidates went uh, much, much further in many cases. Um, it, it, is the public option going to become a reality here in the next couple of years? Well, certainly, I think that's what they have in mind. Um, again, another incremental stepping stone to single payer. Uh, recently, uh, Senators Bennett from Colorado and Senator Kane from Virginia reintroduced their public option proposal in the Senate. Um, I think it could go one of two ways. Either they can say we're going to double down and have the government run a health care plan, or they're going to micromanage and, and overregulate what insurance plans already are in the marketplace and really make them a public utility. It will be private coverage in name only because the system is built so that the government will decide what people get, not the people. <laughs> As someone who's just had to work with a public utility uh, here in Texas uh, to get my garbage can as the appropriate garbage can for the so they'll actually pick up the garbage from the house i can't wait to have to deal with that sort of stuff when it comes to healthcare. that's going to be scary um let me uh let me go to the 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 big the big uh the big uh, ending for them which is the single payer plan uh, you know obviously republicans are not going to support this but they're not going to support the public option either they're not going to be able to get 60 votes on this this is the type of thing to me it seems like they're going to have to go through with a, a removal or an adjustment of some sort of the filibuster uh and if they are to do that which i think is is very becoming more and more plausible um wouldn't they just go for it I mean, why not just go for their end game if they're going to basically completely manipulate the rules of the game on the fly? Why not go for it? They really can't pay a price for it, at least until 2024, because even if Republicans take the Senate or, and or the House back, Biden can, can veto everything that they do. So really, they're years away from paying the price for this. I'm terrified they're just going to wind up going for the whole thing. I think that the public gets the end goal in many ways and understands why uh, the the idea of a single payer or government run health care was not um, full throated endorsed it endorsed during the Democratic um, primaries. And I think it's because Americans actually, in many cases, like the health insurance that they have. They might hear of someone who's had a problem and they want those problems to be fixed. Mm -hmm. But all in all, they are satisfied with their private health insurance. And I think that the single payer and the efforts on the left to move to single payer um, just really frighten the American people that they will lose all control over their health care and will have to depend on not just um, insurance plans, but insurance plans now being told and regulated uh, by the federal government for what kind of health care they can get. Mm, that's, a, that's a scary, scary thought. Um, you go through in the piece, which is great. We'll make sure to tweet it out. Um, the next phases in the in the playbook from the left. You have four steps here. Um, I don't know if you have it in front of you or if you've memorized it, but I can walk you through it if you don't. Um, but you kind of say like the, this legislation that they're bringing up is kind of giving us the playbook of the direction they're going to go. Yeah, so it's very, you can actually even broaden it further. The actions that this administration has taken, the COVID bills, all fit into a similar pattern, which is 
One, let's throw more money at the problem and cover up the real cost of what the healthcare, what their health care plan is. That's what they've done with the subsidies to the insurance plans and what they're doing by trying to throw more money at the states for the Medicaid program. Then the idea is, well, now that we've got all this money flowing, we need that we need people to actually enroll in the government plan. So how do we do this? Well, they throw money at things like navigators and outreach. We heard these during the Obama years and they're coming back again. Those are people who will go and try to push people into the government health insurance plans um, so that they can solidify and consolidate enrollment in these government plans. The third um, step is really to kind of minimize, curb, get rid of any alternatives that might be out there. The Trump administration did a great job in really opening up a marketplace for people who couldn't afford the cost of Obamacare. Mm -hmm. Um, They allowed things like association health plans where businesses could band together. Uh, They allowed for uh, uh, short-term plans where if people are between jobs, they could get something temporary to patch them between um, their healthcare coverage. They did a lot of efforts um, on the private sector side to make sure that people had affordable choices. This administration and this Congress are already looking to strip back all those um, gains that that were that had happened under the Trump administration. And then finally, um, they're really trying to strip states flexibility and really stripping the ability of the states to design and help fix what's going on on the ground in their states with premiums, with choices. Um, we know that the healthcare system is actually worse off today than it was before Obamacare. This is still, you know, the same news that we had 10 years ago or 13 years ago. Premiums are still higher, more than double what they were uh, before Obamacare. And choices that people have in the exchanges are fewer by a third than what they had outside of uh, before Obamacare came into play. So, and costs, total cost of what this is costing the American taxpayer continues to skyrocket and is now even worse because of the spending under the COVID bills. So they're really trying to uh, rally their the uh, their efforts around consolidating the control under the federal government, where they can then piece by piece move the healthcare system um, into a government-run, single-payer Medicare-for-all system. Mm, okay, uh, the, I mean, this is it's, it's going to be something very interesting to watch as we go forward. One last one before I, I let you go. Uh, this has been a crazy year, uh, the craziest year that I can ever remember, certainly in my entire life. Uh, when you, you've studied this your whole life, how did the U.S. healthcare system uh, how did it handle this pandemic? Better than you thought? Worse than you thought? What what, what is from from your view vantage point? What did you see? Well, I think um, from a policy standpoint, I think that when it first came out, a lot of the deregulatory actions that the administration took, as well as at the state level, across the board, Republican and Democrat governors really did begin to deregulate um, their healthcare systems because they needed to have the system that moved more nimbly, more quickly, and more responsive to immediate and changing information on the ground. That has been a huge success. I hope that um, in the coming months and and in that we've learned that actually allowing the system to be more nimble and more flexible on the ground is really what makes the healthcare system the best it can be. And I'm hoping that these gains that have been um, achieved over the past year on the regulatory side and some of the policy innovations 
really are fortified moving forward and not stripped away to get us to, sadly, a more government-run system. Yeah, it was interesting to see, like, when it comes to treatments and the vaccine, everyone just turned into a libertarian, like, overnight. Everyone was like, oh, yes, we don't need any regulation anymore. It, was, it worked out well. It was the fastest we've ever seen anything like that develop. Nita Ocherenko Schaefer, she's a senior fe- uh, research fellow at, uh, at the Heritage Foundation. Make sure to check out her piece. It is Don't Blink or You'll Miss It. The left is quietly putting in place everything it needs for a single-payer system. No one's talking about this, and we need to make sure we're monitoring it. Nina, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks so much for having me. All right, back in a second. I taped the show a little early today because I've got baseball to go watch in a full stadium. Major League Baseball. I don't care where their stupid all-star game is. I'm still going to go watch America's team, the Toronto Blue Jays, beat up on the Rangers. We'll see you tomorrow.